Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 169 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Kelly Roof joining us, and she is the chief brand officer over at Root here in town. And if you guys don't know about Root, well, you should. Go learn about them. They're a uh, car insurance company that gives you insurance based on how you drive. And Kelly's got a great story, a lot of great lessons for all of us out there. Uh, And uh, from New York all the way to Columbus, she's had a lot of great experiences working in places like Martha Stewart and Ology here in town before joining the Root team. I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit found by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is small b i z cares.org Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Kelly Roof joining us, and she's the chief brand officer at Root, a car insurance company uh, we should all be pretty familiar with here in Columbus by now, but in case you aren't, they help good drivers get better rates on car insurance based on how you drive. And before joining the team at Root, Kelly was a partner and chief creative officer at Ology, and she spent some time as a writer before that. We're really excited to have her here on the show talk about Root and learn from her experiences. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, it's really exciting to have you here, and it's excited to have someone from the root team. I've yeah. been excited about talking to you guys because you guys just have a lot of things going on around Columbus. There's a don't couple you? things going on, yeah. Right. So uh, I guess typically though, before we talk about root and everything you're doing today, we like to take a step back and talk about everything that led you to this point. Mm-hmm. So some of the key stops along your life career, maybe even all the way back to childhood, and kind of what led you into your current role. Sure. I am a writer by by training. Uh, I came up through editorial ranks. I've always been a writer. Out of college, I was an editor at the newspaper. Uh, even a, the reason I even selected the college I ended up going to, Penn State, was because they had a huge print daily newspaper that was not owned by the university. And I love the fact that I could go work at a newspaper for a major, major Big Ten school, but still report unbiased on the university. So that was a big draw to me. It's really where I spent much of my college career. From there, I was headed uh, straight to New York to work at a magazine. And I ended up at Hearst. Of all things, quite ironically, Country Living Magazine is right in the heart of New York City. (laughs) And it's part of the huge media conglomerate Hearst. And I had uh, some amazing experiences there and met an editor who was really, really encouraging me to come follow him uh, to an interesting kind of new company um, by the name of Martha Stewart Living at the time. And eventually I joined him there, and that's where I really continued to hone my writing craft, but started to understand the concept of brand and what brand means across all sorts of different channels and in various states of company growth and company challenge. I grew up with Ohio State in my backyard, and I loved everything about a huge university, but I just didn't want to go to the one in my backyard. So I looked right, I looked left. I grew up here, I obviously wasn't allowed to go to Michigan, and so Penn State was where I, where I headed. And it was an amazing experience, both in terms of size, and I, it's a huge population uh, at Penn State is from the, from the East Coast, so it was pretty natural to then head to New York right after that. So you spent some time at, is it Hertz? Hearst. Okay. Hearst Magazines, okay. yeah. And what was your experience? Country like, living, like, yeah. Like what, what were your daily responsibilities and what were you tasked with? And, and what was the duration of that? Yeah, my first job out of, out of college was an editorial assistant at Hearst, which is what I was going for. That, that was, the, that was the, my biggest dream, and that was the last person on the totem pole. When you look at the masthead in the front of a magazine, the last person is editorial assistant. So that means I did everything. Uh, I was the assistant to two editors, the managing editor, who's kind of really planning out the editorial content, and the photo editor. So this is at a time before photos were all done digitally. I think I made, I think I made $26,000 a year in that job, and even then, New York rent prices, well, I couldn't even afford to be in New York at that point. I was still in Jersey City, working my way up to afford Hoboken, working my way up to affording uh, Manhattan. But I would go in on the weekends just to make extra money over time, selecting, narrowing down the photos, right? If they were doing a barn shoot, for example, a skating party at a barn or something, an ice skating party, I would go in and out of the 20 shots of the barn at sunset, I would pick the final three. You know, it was, it was that kind of thing. So it was a very... Um, I bubble wrapped a lot of vintage pieces that we would send to a photo studio 
in another neighborhood in New York, and then I'd take take a cab. The courier would take that. I'd get there and unbubble wrap and rebubble wrap. I mean, I opened mail. I did all sorts of perfect introductory work into the editorial world of New York at that time, which was early 2000s, late 90s. How long did you stay there for? I was. It's interesting. I was there for under a year, and I remember I was there probably maybe six to nine months almost. And I remember thinking, "You're supposed to stay at your first job for a year. I can't possibly go to this this crazy company, this company called Martha Stewart. Why would I go there, right?" And of course, she was at a point where she had just struck a deal with uh, Kmart at the time to start a retail line and with that money she was able to buy back her magazine she had at that point her magazine and and several books were out lifestyle books and she was able to buy back the magazine and start her own company she uh, her magazine was owned by Time Inc another large media magazine publisher at the time so what made you what pushed you over the edge you know you're asking yourself why would I join this Martha Stewart company I'm yeah I'm doing so well wrapping up vintage vase collection right I'm doing I'm I can get coffee pretty well like I know how to work the stapler in the coffee machine I think it was more the encouragement of of this editor who was moving over there and that it was something it's interesting in your first job you're always looking at okay when is that next step up and that it came earlier than I thought it was so different and foreign to me I thought well I can always get right I can find something back at this level so I, I took I took the the leap. And I think my first role there, I was, this is a job that only exists in New York. I was a fact checker. You check the facts of articles, right? And the, they had mimicked, part of Martha Stewart, they had mimicked an editorial structure throughout the company. So she's launching product lines in Kmart and eventually in lots of other brands and, and retailers. They, there would be a writer for every topic and a fact checker. So I think I was the garden fact checker. I would, so as she was developing garden hoses and plants and seeds and different gardening equipment, I was literally checking the facts on the back of a seed pack or the back of a hose. And of course, because it was Martha Stewart, the packaging didn't just have the facts. It also had how to plant a garden, how to water properly, how to prepare the cucumbers that you would grow, all of that. I then moved into the home category, which was, you know, a step up and I am an expert at folding a fitted sheet I've written how to do that hundreds of times covers? yeah if you can put on a duvet yes <laughs> you've got absolutely. yourself a new job I don't know if I can absolutely match you guys yes you know the trick you've got to sew a button on the f- each corner Wait, what? Yes. I've never heard that trick. I just call Mike in every time. It's Mike we and I struggle. also live together. We say we're roommates and it's a monthly or maybe even less like it's like a bi-weekly struggle to fight this duvet cover Yeah. on, never mind. We're getting There's, really there, there, are, there are not many things that I think are absolute certain in some life, but oh, putting a duvet, duvet on as a one person is impossible. Okay. I can, I'm happy to follow up with the details of how <laughs> to do that, but at a high level, you just sew in, in the four corners of the duvet cover, a little tab with a buttonhole, like a little piece of fabric with a buttonhole, and then sew a button onto each of the four corners. So as you're putting it in, you load it into one end first, and as you're reversing it, it stays put. Because that's the problem with the duvet cover. It stays doesn't stay put, right? Oh, oh my gosh, it makes well, complete we, sense. We understand why you are where you are today. So, <laughs> so how long, well, how big, I guess, to start back was Martha Stewart when you joined, and then how long were you there for? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was there for seven years. So that was, I always say, that's where I really kind of cut my branding teeth. And I, I moved on from fact-checking into more writing roles, 
And the longer I was there, kind of the more the kind of what I deemed at the time better projects I got to take on, uh, including for several years, I was in charge of naming her paint colors, which was something that I had wanted wanted to do for a long time and thoroughly enjoyed. And that's the thing everyone always loves to loves that fun fact that I named. I've named entire lines of paints. There's usually around 250 to 270 paint colors within a single paint line. And she launched in Home Depot and Lowe's and all through different partners. So I love color and I love working with a colorist to kind of develop what works in a palette and then naming of giving it a name that kind of evokes a feeling. And I'm, I get mad when I see a really great paint color that has a bad name. So that was a, a fun component of that job. So I was there also before, during, and after um, the time in which she was convicted for insider trading. So she went to jail over the course of the time that I was there. And talk about learning the the power of brand and how a company can not only survive but evolve and eventually thrive when some when the namesake of your company is literally gone in a federal prison in Kentucky. Uh, how many people were there when you joined the organization? When they when. I joined, it was probably between 100 and 200, and at the height reached 600. Wow, that's mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, they are some of the most impressive offices in New York. It, uh, at some point, it moved to the, over on the, the west side in the Starrett-Lehigh building, which was the original building for kind of rail cars to come through Manhattan and get loaded. With the construction of the Lincoln and Holland tunnels, these massive, massive warehouse buildings that are whole city blocks, and that's on the side of New York where the city blocks are larger, right on 12th Avenue there. And uh, they were kind of deemed useless. And then she and and the, the her team and the architects they used f- had this vision for how to transform these two-story, huge, massive old warehouse spaces into something really beautiful that was still kind of industrial, but just stunning and striking. And the philosophy of that space was that the work should always stand out, so everything was pure white, pure white or pale gray, and so the work always stood out. This is kind of an interesting time. So once you leave Martha Stewart, at what point do you decide it's the time for you to move on, and then where yeah. do you go after that? Yeah, the, I think that as a creative person, there, as a creative professional, there are times, the big debate is, a lot of creators say, should I be in-house or should I at a, at a brand or should I be at an agency? And I think I was there for seven years every day working on the same brand, s- roughly the same palettes, the same fonts, the same general ideas and concepts and, and bringing them to life. And I just think as a creative over time, after seven years, I was ready for something new. And then fast forward to when I've been deep in an agency for, for years and years, there are days when I would have given anything to be back to that brand that I knew so well, and I knew the customer, and I knew where I could push the brand and where I couldn't within Martha Stewart. And that then to be, it does not make sense. There, there's times when I think you're, as a creative, you, you have to balance out segments of your career where you're in-house deep on, on one brand versus when you're in an agency, um, especially at the agency that I was at for so long where you're working on so many different clients in so many different sectors in the course of a week and that you've got to be an expert on all of those. I think 
what's worked for me is chunking those out. And now to have it kind of come back to where I'm in-house again, getting really deep on one brand and figuring out how far I can push that and where I need to rein it in. So you wanted to make the jump and, and get more towards agency life at that point then? Where did you end up going? Yeah, well, was, so I, at that point when I thought, okay, I think I'm ready to leave. And I, one of my colleagues said, you've got Martha Stewart on your resume. This is a strong chip. Make sure you cash it in in the right way. And I looked all over. I interviewed at other retailers in New York. I interviewed in Chicago. In the end, my sister uh, lived in Columbus at the time, and she's in the product. And she she sent me a note and said, I wish I still had this piece of paper. It's a printout. Um, and I, by the way, it was, it was printed on an old like, pixelated printer. And she said, look, there's a lot going on in Columbus. There's a huge creative scene. And it just was a list of all the in-house brand opportunities, in-house creative opportunities through a writing lens and some of the agencies. And she's had one sentence description of each of them. And she, the one of Ology, where I eventually ended up, it said, this place does really great work. They do some of the best work in town. They have some of the best offices. And I know how important the offices are to you. Uh, this is her note to me. And she said, it's, it's a tough place to work, but it's worth keeping on your list. And I started, I said, all right, I'm going to look at Columbus, um, which I wasn't quite, quite ready to move back home, but I, I went in and interviewed at Ology, and instantly there was a really, really good connection with the owner um, and founder, Bev. And that's where I landed and then stayed for the next 11 years. And how big was the team at Ology? How long, you know, what were some of the things... They were doing. Was there any particular niche for them? Yeah, yeah. The team was, pro- it was probably a 40-person company at the time. I came in as an associate creative director, um, which coming from being a writer was a, was a jump for me, one that I was excited uh, and slightly nervous about. They had done a lot in the nonprofit sector, and part of the strategy for Ology's success was they had done so much in the nonprofit se- sector, and a lot of those presentations are then to the boards of these nonprofit organizations. And the board members were then say, saying, that's really great branding work. Wow, that's that's a really interesting marketing approach. Maybe you could come do that also at my for-profit company. And so that's kind of how Ology kind of morphed into doing a, a, a mixture of both nonprofit and then work across financial services, um, some retail, and eventually really heavy in higher education. So you eventually, I mean, we talked about at the beginning of the show, you eventually advanced to chief creative officer, mm-hmm. um, obviously something that not a lot of people will achieve in, in their entire career. Yeah. What do you think helped separate you and, and continue to climb within the organization? One, I think I worked really hard. I think that was at a time in my life where I was, I was so focused on doing really great work and creative work isn't isn't always necessarily if you just put in the right hours you will achieve this result uh, you've got to put in the right hours to somehow come up with the idea and then then you put in the hours to make it right and and really strong um, I think that I came to ology at a time when there was a really strong design foundation and I think this was generally happen- happening within brand universally. Um, They had an incredible design foundation, but there wasn't a true conceptual strength 
or someone who was there to really champion the concept, the art of concepting, that looks great, but what does it mean? What is it trying to do? Uh, and being a writer, and I, I should have added, so while I was at Martha Stewart, and because editorial true journalism was my background, I took a lot of night classes both at NYU and School of Visual Arts. Um, I have a great programs and great professional programs at night to build out a portfolio that could then get me the job at Ology. Um, it would have been difficult if I just came up and presented all of my hose and duvet packaging, right? That wouldn't have, it, it's not alarmingly conceptual. I honestly am jealous. I'm colorblind. So, I mean, like, I see colors, but I clearly mess up uh, the majority of them. Yeah. So, well, maybe um, these names would have helped you understand. Maybe. It's true. <laughs> there, yeah. That makes, I, I've been trying to get him to take this quiz to for these. Never mind. This is really, No, I, I want to like, know. I want to know. I like orange and red, though, are very, very <laughs> self-explanatory, and I still mix those up, and those names don't help me very much. So. Well, yeah. I would never name something orange or red. I, in fact, I get frustrated when people put the color name behind it, right? If I wouldn't, I would never say soft white. I would say picket fence, right? Mm -hmm. Or if it was a white that had a little bit of a, uh, a blue tone, I would say snow globe, right? Or if it was... I would get both of those, right? So maybe maybe you I'm already already healing me. I have no idea. <laughs> but I've been trying to get him to take the quiz for those N chroma glasses. That yes. Like glassy colors. Yes. He won't do it. I'm trying to get him. Wait, I've seen people you do cry. When yeah, they put cry. The I was just on. gonna say they always cry every time. I've just been too busy. I just, I don't have any time to cry either. So I feel like I'm gonna keep putting that one in the back. I didn't realize there was a quiz you took. Yeah. So it helps determine what type of color blindness you have, so they can get you the correct prescription glasses. Because depending on the type of color blindness. There's different types of How glasses. How long does it take? I feel like you could do it while we're having this conversation. Right, I know. He's, he's, I have a lot I of want you to see I colors. Really, I don't need to know the type. There's just a lot of it, I, and I have it. Okay, so well, there you <laughs> right. go. I'll keep, I could keep, yes, I could tell you that I think I always, it always frustrated me if it were in, if it would say picket fence white. The name mm -hmm. should be good enough that it doesn't need the color at the end, mm -hmm. or it should evoke something. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, and the thing about branding in that way, you could apply that to. Totally branding in general yeah, and it, yeah. it really really strikes me like I've never heard anyone describe it quite like that so yeah it was the idea of it and it also I had to name to name these hundreds of paint colors over the course of a few years I had full access to Martha's homes because they all should be somewhat related to her so I had access to go through her collections of dishware and kind of find something that inspired or some, you know I could name something very specific that people that were followers of her would would understand and know all right, Conquerors, we're going to take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called Columbus Gives Back. If you're looking for a way to get involved in your community, but you don't know where and how to start, look no further than Columbus Gives Back. By partnering with over 150 Central Ohio nonprofits, Columbus Gives Back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost, commitment, and hassle. Sign up for your first event today at columbusgivesback.org. That's columbusgivesback.org. Conquering Columbus would also like to take a moment to thank the 11th Candle Company. 11th Candle Company may be in the business of selling candles, but the social enterprise thrives on igniting hope. Employing women who have experienced human trafficking, 11th offers the resources to redeem, empower, and support them on their journeys to burn bright again. Every candle sold shines a light on an issue that often walks in darkness and provides hope to once trafficked women on their path to redemption. Come pour your own candle of hope at Polaris Fashion Place across from the Apple Store 
or visit www.11thcandlecompany.com. That's www.11thcandlecompany.com, and that'll be linked down in the show notes. All right, Conquerors, let's get back to this episode. So I distracted completely from your story and your path to chief creative officer. Yeah. So maybe let's, let's Yeah, what was that on. path? Uh, let's see. So, yeah, be, being the champion of the concept, um, and I think that just by nature, writers have a better grasp or experience of being able to articulate what the idea is. And I think that was always when you're in, when you are a creative agency, a design agency, a strategy agency, the idea of communicating with clients and customers that the writers, I I just kind of naturally started taking on more leadership roles because I was using words both in the creative and also in the way that, that we were pitching and selling these ideas. And so I think that's how, that's how it came to be. I would say that at that time, so much of what I was learning was how to truly put together something that, a positioning or a concept that was differentiating and just being really critical. So a lot of those classes, um, they were taking big wigs from these New York agencies and that's who was teaching. It wasn't a professor, it was somebody from one of these big agencies, um, a, a celebrated, mean, crotchety, creative person that was coming in and and partnering up with someone and you had to put together a whole ad campaign on some on anything you could think of um, all the crazy assignments and then present it to the class and they would shred it and because you know it's just a bunch of kids that they're talking to I'm sure their like managing partner made them do it they're annoyed that they're there but that was some of the best feedback I that advanced me more and gave me real pieces within my portfolio it also changed the work I was doing um, at the time at Martha, I mean, we would present when there was something we were, maybe it was a big press event or a new product line or a new offering or a new media channel we were going down. And I, we would always do two kind of safe concepts. But because of the skill set I was getting through those courses, I would always do some wild one. And just, I mean, they, I, I knew they'd never go for it, but I love that I could put that together and have that kind of sit side by side and say these are all viable are you willing to take this risk which that brand at that time that's not where they were headed and and still aren't but I think because I could then put that together and show range um, that's what I then later could use in in any of my future client presentations range is a big part when you're selling a concept saying all right this is safe this is kind of in the middle of the road, and this is really pushing it. Let's talk about who you want to be and where you want to go, and then we'll figure out which one of these to use. It's funny. It's the same thing in sales where you give somebody a range, but it's typically range yeah. prices, and they're yeah. more likely to select one of them or find yeah. where they want to go. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, when does Root come calling? When does that yeah. opportunity come up? Yeah, this is an interesting story, and one I, I don't usually tell, but the Drive Capital is a... Um, was a local um, venture capital firm, um, a significant one, Columbus's most significant, and they reached out to me and said, we'd like to talk to you about branding our portfolio of companies. I read that as you reaching out to me as an owner of Ology, as a partner at Ology. And I brought my, my fellow business partner, one of the senior partners, to the meeting, and we talked to them about branding their portfolio of companies, but they kept talking, they spent most of the time, one, talking to me, and two, talking about um, this tech startup that was all around using um, data and technology to create a more fair car insurance experience, all in an app. 
and then they called. I figured out halfway through what was probably going on, and they called right after and said, no, we're really, we wanted to talk to you. And it didn't happen right away, but I, I kept in touch with them, and I think I poured everything into my time at Ology over a decade. I'm really proud of what we were able to build there over time, and there's amazing talent um, there, and that, that's carried on to kind of where they are today. Um, but I just, I think, and when I go back to kind of those chunks of life, chunks of life as a creative, I, it just was time for me to do something else. That it was even the back to getting really smart about a deeper topic and really knowing. And I traveled a ton um, for Ology, and it was different days and, and knowing being, okay, I'm an expert on this, I'm an expert on this. And I just was kind of craving something totally wild and out of my comfort zone. And that's exactly what this was. So you mentioned earlier kind of a little bit about uh, what brand means to you. Like, what does brand mean to you today? And um, what does the brand at root represent? And what direction is it going? I define brand as the promise of an experience. So a brand is promoting something, right? And the actual experience better deliver on that. And so that's that's how I've always defined what a good brand is. When, when you're when you're promised something, whether that's through advertising, through any experience that's leading up to the actual experience of using or experiencing that product, and that better deliver on all those messages that that advertising was saying. And so looking through that lens, my experience at Root challenged everything I'd ever known, but continues to, about the creative process, because this is so this is so based in data, and everything I had been reared on had been on clear, crisp con concept, powerful design, all design principles that collectively we could probably say, well, this, that makes a great ad. But at root, there's no such thing as a great ad based on design. There's only great ads based on how did it perform. And here I thought, all these years that you just make the very best creative and the very best creative always wins. Well, I've been proven wrong many times at Root so far that sometimes the best creative doesn't win. Sometimes what I, when I'm putting air quotes around best creative, what I would deem as the best creative sometimes doesn't, doesn't perform. Something that I think, you guys, that, what, that, this, this ad is terrible. This video that we have all over Facebook and Google, this, this isn't strong. The type is wonky. The, that the the tone of the video of the music track is all off uh, that the message what that isn't even crisp but that will perform better than something that I think looks visually stunning or striking or more powerful um, that's not always the case but this so much of what my day-to-day -day now is understanding what performs and really trying to dissect why and they need to be measurable whys not everything that I think is a, is a standard design principle because I realize now more than ever that so much of that is all subjective. Do you think it's because, yeah, yeah, I, think it yeah. Makes, I think it makes a lot of sense. Do you think it's because, so something that I'm working on today from a sales perspective is trying to figure out what templates, what messaging is gonna mm -hmm. stand out. It's gotta be within our brand, but what messaging stands out? And one of the things we run into is it's not about being better, it's about being different. Mm -hmm. Do you think that kind of, so when you mentioned you're seeing things that maybe aren't the best creative, 
but they're standing out in some way. Is it because they're different from what else is out there? What, like, is there any trends you're seeing and yeah. things that are working? Sometimes difference is what matters. Sometimes it's interesting. Some of our top performing videos have even lower production quality than I think is passable. But those are the spots that, that do best. It's also interesting that, so as chief brand officer, I oversee four areas. One is integrated marketing. So we are testing all the different channels. We have a growth marketing team, um, which I work alongside. They're putting out all the different, mostly digital videos and ads and assets on the traditional Facebook and Google platforms integrated marketing, we're testing some things on those platforms, so we're also testing lots of other, both non-traditional and traditional, to see what works. What, what marketing assets and what channels perform to a point that we can scale them in an efficient manner and almost toss them over to growth as this is something that should always be on. And then additionally, I oversee product design. These are the groups, the group of designers, design thinkers who are actually creating the in-app screens. And so to your point about what works, sometimes depending on where we're reaching them, sometimes it is something different. Um, but as you get further down in the flow or further brand awareness, you don't want different, you want credibility or trust. We know that when we talk about, it's it's an interesting, it's a, it's a high-tech product, so it takes a minute to explain the steps. But we know that if we explain too much, we lose consumers. I know right when the point of that we've, gone too far or gone too deep, we start to, a lot of people drop off and listening to our message. So it's constant refinement and figuring out where, where we're trying to reach them and what do we want to be differentiating to catch their eye, or are we counting on this point that we've caught their eye a few times and now we have to build up credibility. So that's kind of a different, a different look and feel and a different message. And by the time they get, get to the app, how much of that is still showing trust and credibility and engaging them versus moving them through the flow to then eventually get a quote. And so one thing that made me think about that in terms of brand health, you mentioned brand health really early on in that process. And, I, and I've just been thinking about this from a perspective of also I have to throw in there that Josh is one of these people that I'm thinking of, but do you get a lot of negative reviews and because people will drop off, but also root is designed to ensure people who are good drivers. Yes. So sometimes people get rejected. Yes. And I'm yeah, guessing... I've never written any negative reviews. I did get rejected, <laughs> but I kept a very positive outlook on the platform. Josh is a bad driver. And I, <laughs> have, I have confidence that us meeting, we'll maybe we'll go in the back end and we'll adjust some things. <laughs> okay, we could, we could look into that. I'm interested to see. I wonder if I could... I qualified for Ruto. Okay, good driver. Good, good, good. Um, what was your score? Uh, I got perfect on the driving because I'm a perfect driver. Okay. But I've had a couple of accidents okay. that were clearly not my fault with a score that's perfect. <laughs> and everybody else who hit me is probably insured. And was I it during most, your trial? Was I it during had, your Was it during your trial that you got in an accident? No. I think I avoided accidents during the trial, which was a good positive for them. <laughs> yes. But prior, I had had uh, some speeding tickets as well because my cruise control was broke. Right. Oh, the cruise control was broken. But. Regardless, how do you deal with that? I mean, I'm guessing that there are people leaving reviews saying, like, oh, I got rejected. This is baloney. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a big part of, of how we've grown is our reviews, and we encourage people to reviews. We're really proud. We have an average star rating on the um, iOS system 
a 4.7 mm-hmm. out of 5, which is incredible. But yeah, there are people that leave negative reviews. One, I've got, it, it's interesting because we, of course, uh, can build uh, learning models to go through and understand. We're co- constantly measuring social sentiment to see kind of where we're rating and the, the majority of, rev- of reviews that we're getting versus the number of policies we have out there. And when you kind of scan to find the keywords that can t- tell you if a sentiment is positive or negative, there's a lot that say 10 out of 10. And if it says 10 out of 10, normally you'd think it's a positive review. But for Root, if it says 10 out of 10, it's usually a negative review because they're mad they got a 10 out of 10 but then didn't get a quote. We're constantly looking at things, obviously, like a prior record, even the type of vehicle that you're driving. Um, and we go back and we answer, re- respond to every, every social media review and explain, mm-hmm. here are the reasons why. This is the way we can keep our costs down. That's got to be a big effort. You know, it's a huge effort. Right. It's a huge effort. And, you know, it was pretty incredible. So just a quick story about me signing up for Root. I really enjoyed the process. I thought it was great. But I was using USAA, and I, when I signed up, I was like, ah, they probably won't be able to save much money for me, right? USAA is USA's, pretty, yeah. pretty solid. I ended up saving like 20 bucks a month. All right. Well, so that's, like, hey, so, I like hey, that. It's time real. Review, go check it out. It's still one of what I pay a month. So. <laughs> right. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, where where do we see or where do you see I should say the direction of Roots brand going as you continue to have this explosive growth and um, all these awesome and amazing opportunities to open up for you and the team? Yeah, it so Root car insurance is a category that's the insurance itself is a century old and it's there's a lot lot to it that is incredibly archaic. Root was designed to bust all of that up. Um, but we're up against some carriers, some pretty significant carriers, right? I mean, these these big brands that dominate our TVs, right? You see mm-hmm. commercials, and these are big commercials. They're putting a ton of money into their into their spend. Um, I think the, each the top two probably put close to a billion dollars each. Um, and we, the goal is that we don't do that. That's how we can have savings on the customer end. Uh, so by We've designed the brand to be opposite of those in-your-face, flashy gimmicks, spokespeople, uh, jingles, uh, really kind of playing up on some of these, the trend of the moment, and that's that's what they'll play up. In complete contrast, our, our brand is stripped down. It's mostly black and white with a pop of orange. Um, we use a lot of black and white photography of real people. We just did a shoot in Columbus a couple weeks ago, and it's a real family. They're not, it's not a, these actors that are perfectly styled. We're trying to be really direct in how we explain what we are, what our product is, what we stand for, ease, fairness, uh, price, uh, and how data and technology are such a big part in creating, making those possible. And the more clear and direct and simple ways we communicate that, that I think the stronger the brand will be because that is that does stand out from what everyone else in this category is doing. And then just talking about the city of Columbus in general, you know, you lived here, you grew up here, you're born here, you moved away, and then you came back. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, being a professional in the city, doing business in the city, yeah. and especially a place like uh, you know Root to have a billion dollar plus valuation currently yeah. you know to operate in the city yeah i think this i i love columbus I, it grows up more and more every year into different iterations 
And I, I, I love that a kind of come, we, I always say the root couldn't happen anywhere else. And there's kind of a magic recipe for why it can happen here. Columbus itself has a huge history of financial services and even insurance, right? There've been a lot of companies. We think about the, just historically, the ones that have been founded here and had, had a big presence here. Additionally, we have a major university right here. Innovation is kind of in the air. Plus there's a huge influx of young talent. In terms of even the way we've been able to partner um, with some of the state government level, um, partnering with different transportation agencies to help us shape what this product is and how, how we're moving through some of the regulatory issues of starting an insurance company. It's, it's not easy. I think, I truly think that there, there's no other dynamic that could, this, that route could have been this successful. This couldn't have happened in the Bay Area. This couldn't have happened on the East Coast. And then add in just the kind of Midwestern work ethic. And I think that's why Columbus and Root are a perfect match. We, we just put up, we're in the commons, we're in a big um, new build right on the commons on Rich and Third. And we just put our sign up a couple weeks ago on the building and it's just an awesome site because this company didn't exist four years ago. It's mm -hmm. wild, right? It, it just started four years ago. And to now know that we have four floors in that building, we've got two, we're building two other. So we ran out of room, so we already had to open an Easton office. Um, we've got small offices in other parts of the country and remote employees as well. But the majority of our 700 plus employees, 600 of them are here in Columbus. I was just thinking that as you were telling that story, I'm like, you guys are gonna need a new building, only four floors. Yeah, that, uh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we got, I mean, we were the first tenants in this, so mm -hmm. we were the biggest tenant. Um, yeah, we're going to need, I think, campus. We might need a, a campus. A little more space. <laughs> Maybe just a little more space. <laughs> but um, so I, I guess kind of pivoting towards some of the last questions of our show. And yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges, I guess from a brand perspective for you, right? What are some of the biggest challenges you're seeing as the company continues to grow in you know, the next three, five years long term for the brand? The biggest challenge in terms of, I think, this, this a new brand in this industry is building up long-term brand awareness and long-term brand equity, but also getting customers right now, right? Um, because the the lifetime value of a customer for Root, this is a, this is a product that you're legally required to have, right? Mm -hmm. And price is, is what drives a lot of people to switch, and we want to make sure that people often come to us for price, right? And but we want to make sure they stay for the long term, not just for price, that there's there's more to us, that they appreciate the fairness, they appreciate um, how easy we've made it, they appreciate the technology that is powering all of this. Um, and so that's, it's the balance of gaining new customers, but making sure that people understand the bigger picture of where Root is headed. And how do we then apply those principles to maybe other future categories that we might get into? That makes a lot of sense. So really just that long-term equity has got to be the hardest piece there. I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing pretty good on the customers. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to make sure that people know us for more than, oh, that's that that's that really affordable car insurance company. Mm -hmm. I want them to know, hey, they're that, they're that insurance company that doesn't base their price on your demographic, on what, solely on what your zip code and what, your occupation, what your education level is. Those are things that other the other insurance carriers all base, primarily base your rate on, and Root doesn't. Um, it's primarily based on how you drive. 
Yeah, for me, they're the, they're the hard-to-get insurance company. <laughs> soon, soon I'll have them. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah, um, we need to figure out the campaign where we go back. We've talked about this. We have go you got better and, driving? Yeah, or, we, or do we have to get have some tips? We give you some tips. Um, Here's a recommended. You can watch this lesson on how to drive better. <laughs> I got a tip. They said go 20 miles per hour slower, and then we'll accept you. <laughs> right. Um, but I think that's a great place to kind of pivot to our last question yeah. of the show, which is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. Oh, yeah. And without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a podcast about startups and entrepreneurs. Well, I want to know why. <laughs> well, uh, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, I think every time that I've switched a into a big kind of if I look at these three phases, my Martha Stewart phase, my ology phase, and now my root phase, all of those shifts were left at times of comfort, right? When I was, when I was comfortable where I was. Um, and I, I'm saying comfortable doesn't mean it was easy or laid back, but I knew what I was doing at the time and w was ready for something new. It doesn't mean that I was, it was easy at those times, but it was, I feel, I feel that going, jumping to root, was uh, a big jump into kind of uncharted waters for me. And it's, it's definitely been, each of those have been pretty live uncomfortably. So I feel like I, with each jump, I checked that off and then went to find another one. Yeah, it really does sound like the theme of your entire professional career has been when things get too comfortable, you push yourself into these deep yeah. waters where you can uh, then become uncomfortable once again. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. You guys Perfect. are worth a therapy hour here. <laughs> yeah, we can keep going. We'll, we'll, we'll charge a psychology. We'll charge if you yeah. want. You, you know, guys, yes, put. I've given you duvet tips. Right, that, I will take the duvet tips. But, I really uh, am going to send you the oh article. Man. Hey, conquerors, if you're having trouble with the duvets, check the links down in the show notes. We're going to send the article. Um, but uh, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. We've had a lot of fun. And, thanks and for appreciate you me. sharing your story on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit found by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. The small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is small, B-I-Z, cares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself 
become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.